title of the message today is Rainy or Not, Here It Comes, and I had to do that. So that's, that's for you guys. Some of you guys still don't really even get that it's supposed to be funny. But listen, we're back in Genesis tonight, continuing with the story of Noah and the flood. So we took a break last week because we had a communion together and we looked at Caleb. Uh, but today we're picking it up where we left off. Uh, we studied chapter six uh, two weeks ago. And we saw how crazy that culture was of that day and how evil it was. And we saw God's announcement. He said, hey, y'all have 120 years left before things change. Uh, We saw how among billions and uh, quite literally many people uh, that there was one man who found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And who was that one man? Oh, come on. Who was that one man? Noah, right? And God gives him that command to build an ark. And we left off last uh, two weeks ago, our last time together, of what God had told them to do. And this was Noah's response. Look in your Bibles at the last verse of chapter six. Okay, this is where we left off. The last verse of chapter six, verse 22 says, thus Noah did according to all that God had commanded him. So he did. Listen. Listen up, guys. So we talked about last week how that there was potentially 55 to 75 years that would have passed in between God's command to Noah uh, to the point of the actual flood, meaning he didn't have 120 years to build the flood. It would have been uh, roughly anywhere from 55 to 75, which means that in between chapters 6 and 7, okay, chapters 6 and 7, guys, put the cheeses away, come on. Where, this is God's word. Movie night, you can bring out all the snacks. But listen, as we get to God's word, we got to be serious about tonight. So in between these two chapters, six and seven, just that verse, look at verse 22 of chapter six and look at verse one of chapter seven. About 55 to 75 years pass. And it's clear that during these years, Noah was faithful. Day after day, building the ark to the point of chapter seven, the ark is now built. And so today we're going to be covering a lot of ground, chapters 7 and 8, and it's going to describe from about seven days before the flood comes all the way to the day that Noah gets out of the ark. And so that's chapters 7 and 8, from seven days before the flood to the day that he walks on dry land once again. Now, my goal today is not to prove that the flood happened, okay? We know that it happened because God said it happened. We simply are going to, t- to today march through the text and pull out what God would want us to meditate on. However, let's say, let me say up front that the evidence for the worldwide flood is overwhelming, okay? When you look at extra biblical evidences, given the fossil record, evidences from other cultures, and so many more factors, um, that it is not just something that, oh, well, the Bible says it happened, but there is proof and evidence within our world with even the Bible removed, okay? So if that's something that interests you regarding like, did the flood actually happen outside of what God's word says, then I'd encourage you guys to go to a website called Answers in Genesis, okay? Raise your hand if you've ever heard of that website, Answers in Genesis. I would hope uh, many of you have, as we've been uh, talking about Ken Ham in, in uh, 
recent years, and he came not too long ago. So his website, Answers in Genesis, they got all kinds of articles, and he is, uh, he is an expert regarding Noah, okay? But let's pray, and we'll get into God's word. Lord, we thank you that as we come to your word, we don't have to doubt it. We don't have to wonder if this did take place. Lord, we can trust that what you tell us in this book is trustworthy because you have preserved it uh, through quite literally thousands of years for us to read in this place tonight. And Lord, we know that the word of God does not return void uh, to that which you have sent it. And Lord, we know that tonight as we approach your word that you're going to speak to us. And so God, we pray that you would uh, just change our lives through this story, through this account, uh, Lord, that um, it wouldn't just be something that we'd gloss over. Oh yeah, the flood. I, I've heard about that, Lord, but we would allow your word to pierce our hearts tonight. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. All right, so if you're taking notes, uh, we're first looking at God's provision, okay? And this is kind of uh, gonna be, we're gonna look at different chunks. We don't have time to go through every verse in chapters seven and eight, uh, but what we see in these couple chapters and specifically chapter seven is God's provision, okay? Look with me, uh, starting in chapter seven, look at verse one and uh, we'll just read down until, until I say stop. Look at verse one. It says, then the Lord said to Noah, come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. You shall take with you seven each of every clean animal, a male and his female, two each of animals that are unclean, a male and his female. Verse three, also seven each of birds of the air, male and female, to keep the species alive on the face of all the earth. For after seven more days, I will cause it to rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights. And I will destroy from the face of all the earth uh, all living things that I have made. And Noah did according to all that God commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood waters were on the earth. So Noah with his sons, his wife, and his son's wives went into the ark because of the waters of the flood. Of clean animals, of animals that are unclean, of birds and everything that creeps on the earth. Two by two, they went into the ark to Noah, male and female, as, as God had commanded Noah. And then jump down to verse 13. It gives us a little more detail. Verse 13, on the very same day, Noah and Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, the three wives of his sons with them, entered the ark. They and every beast of after its kind, all cattle after their kind, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, every bird of every sort. And they went into the ark to Noah, two by two, of all flesh in which is the breath of life. Notice verse 16. So those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. Well, here we see God's provision. I want you to picture this scene. For 55 to 75 years, Noah and his sons has, have spent day after day, month after month, year after year, pouring all of their labor, effort, sweat, and energy into building a giant boat that is able to float, but has no way of being steered. You know, I wonder if there were times of discouragement. That's a long time, right? 55 to 75 years, that's a long time. And they were building this boat in the middle of the desert. No one had ever seen rain. There had never been a flood. Were there times of questioning 
I wonder. You know, after they were, after all, they, they've never seen what God had said is coming. Yet, we know that God said go, and so Noah went. And now it was time. After years of preparation and anticipation, I wonder if like 25 years in, if Noah was like, am I going to like know when this thing comes? Like, what if we're only halfway to building it? I wonder if there was times when they're halfway there and they're wondering, man, can we even do this? What's going to happen? But now God speaks to Noah a second time. Look at verse one and notice what God says. He says, come into the ark. I want you to think about that for a moment. It's easy to read past. He says, come into the ark. If God says, come into the ark and not go into the ark, what is the implication of where God is? In the ark. I love the assurance behind this. God doesn't say, all right, Noah, time to get into the ark. He assures them that he will be with them. He says, I'm in the ark and I want you now to come into me. You know, this reminds me of what Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight. He said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Again, in John six thirty seven, Jesus were to say, was to say, all that the father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. This is God's call to everyone. Come to me. But only Noah and his family were willing to listen and obey. There were years that others could have chosen to help Noah build the ark and get on the ark. We're told that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And so not only was he a builder, he was a preacher. Meaning those years that people would have come and seen, what are you doing, Noah? Why are you building a boat in the middle of a desert There's no water here. Oh, there's a flood coming and it's God's judgment. They would have ridiculed him. They would have looked at him as if he was crazy. You see, after all these years, there were none except these eight. Noah and his wife, Noah's three sons and their wives, they were the only ones that were willing to come. And so God gives this invitation to come to me. And it's an invitation that, for us is parallel to even what we experience now. And so following this invitation, though, is an instruction. Look in the following verses. Uh, What we just read was God reiterating, repeating the instruction that he gave to him years earlier. Years earlier, he told him that, hey, there's a flood going to come. And Noah, I want you to not only build this boat, but there's going to come a time when you're going to gather the animals onto the boat. Now, notice here that it wasn't just two of every animal. You know, we typically think of that. Two by two, two of every animal that they came on the boat. But notice what these verses say. We're told in chapter seven, in these first opening verses, verses uh, one through four, that it was two of every unclean animal, but it was actually seven of clean animals and birds. So there are some specific animals like sheep that would have been considered clean. They didn't, they didn't just get male and female, but they actually would have up to seven. And we'll see a little while later why that might be so. But remember, Noah didn't have to go and find all these animals and, and try to wrangle them up. Imagine that. 
Imagine if Noah had to go out and try to find everyone. Uh, he didn't. They came to him, and then Noah was to take care of them. And so that's why in chapter 6, God said, hey, I want you to build the boat, and I want you to prepare enough food for not only you and your family, but also for the animals. And so look, at, look again at verse 16 and notice God's provision over them. So Noah obeys what God said. The animals come. He gets them on the boat. He takes care of them. He gets them into their stalls. He has enough food for the time for not only them, but his family. And then we're told this, verse 16. Verse 16, it says, So those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God commanded him. And what does it say? And the Lord shut him in. I love this. You know, Noah didn't have to create a way to shut the door from the inside because we're told it was God who shut the door for them. He entered and it was God who shut them in from, from the outside, from the inside. The door was open and anyone could have come. But we see that it was only eight that chose to, and it would be those eight people out of the billions on the earth that would make it through. Now, there's an incredible picture for us pointing to Jesus and our salvation. There was a door, but that door was shut. And only those who would go in through the door would be saved. Anyone see any picture here? John chapter 10 Verses, uh, verse 9 says this, Jesus himself said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Isn't it amazing that we could be in Genesis chapter 7 and see this symbolism and parallelism regarding Jesus and salvation? Do you think this is a coincidence? I don't think it is. The Bible says that today is the day of salvation, and you never know when that door is going to shut. You see, there's a parallel here. In the days of Noah, there was men that were wicked and evil, but there was a way out. There was a way through God's judgment, but that was only for those who would enter by the door, but they'd have to have faith that there was a flood coming, that there was impending judgment, and many did not believe that. And same today, the Bible says that there's impending judgment, that on a, on a Christ-rejecting world full of sin, God says, my judgment is coming, but there's a way through. And that way through is through my son, Jesus. Jesus says, I am the door. And there's only one door. How many doors were on the ark? There's only one. There wasn't a back door. There wasn't a hidden door. There wasn't a trap door. There was one door and that door was Jesus. That's the picture. Now for us, there's still a door, and it's Jesus, but there, that door is going to shut one day. Did you know? Jesus' salvation that he offers is not forever. There's actually a time limit to it, and it's a time limit that no one knows the day or the hour. hour. So if you're taking notes, there's two ways that this door shuts today. When a person dies, that door shuts. That opportunity, wh whether you're on the inside or the outside, that door is shut. There's no opportunity after that. You see, once God shut Noah and his family in, there was no one able to get in and there was no one else saved. 
There was no one that like, you know, figured out a secret way to survive the flood. No, it was only through Jesus. For the case of the believer, the rapture is that other possibility. Um, but for a non-believer, the rapture it doesn't, doesn't do anything other than it's not going to be very fun here on earth. The second way that that door shuts is when Jesus returns during his second coming for judgment. That's when the opportunity to receive Christ, to go through the door, is no more. And so we see here that there are only eight saved out of quite possibly billions of people. And doesn't this remind us of what Matthew records Jesus saying in Matthew 7, 14? Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And what does it say? There are few who find it. I find it to be a very sobering thought that in heaven, there's not a majority. There's a minority there. The Bible says that many are called, but few are chosen. You know, what we just read is, is the salvation of eight people and the judgment of billions. And that's what's taking place on a daily basis where there are people dying daily. The door is being shut and some are in the inside, but most are in the outside. And that is the reality of our world that we live in. But there is still the door open to this day. Now, additional to God's provision, we also see God's promise fulfilled in a couple ways. So if you're taking notes, point number two today is not only God's provision, but God's promise. Look in your Bibles and read with me uh, verse 10 through 12. Verse 10 through 12. We had skipped over it because it gives a little detail of what happened on that, that seven-day um, grace period. But he says this, verse 10, And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were on the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of that month, on the day that all the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were open and the rain was on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Now, if you, we don't have time to read it, but if you go down verses 17 through 24 to the end of, of chapter eight, uh, describes for us kind of those waters increasing. That, that for 40 days and 40 nights, there was this intense rain, uh, both from coming up from the earth and coming down from the sky. But this was God's promise. You see, God said 120 years earlier that he was going to put an end to the insanity on the earth by wiping everyone out. And listen, God was faithful to his word. Everyone look at me. God will do what he says he will do every time. The Bible says he's not slack concerning his promise, both of salvation and of judgment, both of rescue and return. And we see him fulfill that. He fulfills his promise to Noah. He said, I'm going to save you. Come into the ark. And he also said to the rest of the world that I'm going to judge you. And as sure as God will keep his promise about salvation that you and I hold on to, is as sure as we can be sure he will keep his promise of judgment. They go together. Now notice these verses, verses uh, 10 through 12. We're told that the floodwaters came in two ways, okay? Notice there in verse 11. 
verse 11, we're told that the first way that this water came was through the fountains of the great deep. We're told that they were broken up or that they burst with violent pressure. The idea is this, that, that it wasn't just rain. Sometimes we think of the flood of just rain coming down from the sky. Now that did happen, and that's the second way. But the first way, we're told that there was kind of this violent eruption uh, from the great deep or the oceans, that it seemed like there was this water buildup, this pressure under the earth, and water came flooding out from the oceans and began filling the earth. But not only that, secondly, notice verse 11, that the windows of heaven were opened. The heaven here is a reference to the atmosphere. Water was coming from both directions. The picture is that there was no escaping what was about to take place. And we're told that for 40 days and 40 nights um, that there was this increase of water. And it seems that these 40 days and 40 nights, that's how long it took to fill the earth to the brim, meaning that it would then uh, be able to encompass the highest mountain. But actually what the Bible says here is that is it rained for longer than that. The water continued to increase 150 days in. So it seems like the 40 days, which is what we normally have in our mind when we think of Noah's Ark, that was just 40 days of intensity, but the, the rain and the flooding continued for 150 days in. Now look here in, verse, in, uh, in these verses, verses 17 through 24, we're, we're told that all flesh had died. Everything that had the breath of life, including all people and all land animals, who were not on the ark had died. So there, don't, don't think there was some escapee or someone who swam really good. No, they all died, okay? Look at the end of verse 23. It gives us this, this clarity. Verse 23 says, only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive. This is no doubt the most amount of people to die at one time in human history. This was absolutely tragic, but absolutely necessary. But when we read this, we must not think that God was in heaven rejoicing over what took place. Ezekiel 33 verse 11 tells us something very important about God that we must take note of. Ezekiel says, says this, say to them, as I live, says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? You see, all the people on the earth could have got on the ark. Now, they wouldn't have all fit on there, but God knew in advance that, that none of them were gonna be coming. But God wanted them to. God desires that all would come to life, come to repentance, but God doesn't have this excitement. You know, sometimes when we watch a movie, and we see the bad guy die, there's like the cheering, right? There's the excitement. And there's that just, you know, that kind of in our own heart, that like desire for justice. But God doesn't look at the death of the wicked as something to rejoice in, but it is something to be mourned. But it doesn't mean that his judgment will uh, be pulled back. 
Now, the judgment that we see here, it's important for us to learn because according to the Bible, what we find here in chapter 7 and chapter 8 is a foreshadow of the judgment to come. This is what Jesus told us. And this is why we're studying this uh, today is because it's important for us to know because it's still applicable. Luke chapter 17, verses 26 and 27 says this, And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were all given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. So Jesus believed in the flood so much so that he referenced it. Luke 17 was a time that the disciples came to Jesus and they say, Jesus, tell us about the end. What are the signs that are coming? What should we look for? Well, Jesus, when talking to the disciples, he said, we got to look back to the days of Noah. Because as the days of Noah were evil, and remember the crazy marriages that we had talked about a couple weeks ago, involving some demons and just crazy, nasty weirdoness. The Bible says that there's going to be some, notice the emphasis here. And I just think this is interesting. It says they ate, they drank, means they didn't really care. They married wives, they were given in marriage. Why does it repeat it twice? To me, that tells, tells me of an emphasis, that there's something revolving around marriage, meaning as we see things begin to look like the days of Noah again, we can know that judgment is close. Judgment is not far off. Think about our world today. Think about the perversion of marriage itself and how that can be defined as anything, but God has defined it to be. And you see some of these signs, Jesus said, as the end gets closer, there's going to be a day where Jesus comes back and judges not with water, but the second judgment will be with fire. We're getting ahead of ourselves, but remember God promises to never flood the earth again. That's why he is not going to do this by water, but by fire. You can note down 2 Peter 3, verses 6 through 9. I know that it's a little bit small up there, but hopefully you can follow along. Peter makes reference of the flood and says this, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. That's what we're talking about. Now he... he parallels this. He says, but the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition or destruction of ungodly men. What is he saying? He says, hey, they were destroyed by water, but there's a day coming where Jesus is is going to come to a, a place where he says no more, right? That's what we talked about last week, that God's judgment has a breaking point, has a point where God says enough is enough. And there's a day coming that that's going to happen once more. But look at what verse eight says. But beloved, do not forget this one thing that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. He's not lazy concerning his promise as some count slackness, but is long suffering, patient toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Ever heard that verse before regarding a thousand days to the Lord? Uh, sorry, what is it? <laughs> that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. Have you ever heard that before? No. The idea here with this verse 
is the idea that, that God's not in any rush. Meaning we can look at our world and we say, why didn't God come like 10 years ago? Because things seem pretty bad. God says, the reason that I haven't come yet, the reason that judgment hasn't happened, notice verse nine, he says, because he desires that all would come to repentance. He is waiting every moment he's able to. Now, not only is God not slack concerning his promise of coming judgment, but he's also not slack concerning his promise of salvation. Let's read Genesis 1 through 5. This is still under the umbrella of God's promise. But notice chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. You guys still have your Bibles open? All right, look at verse 1 of chapter 8. Then God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth and the waters subsided. Verse two, the fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven also were stopped and the rain from the earth, uh, the rain from heaven was restrained and the waters receded continually from the earth. And at the end of the 150 days, the waters decreased. Then the ark rested in the seventh month, the 17th day of the month and on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters decreased continually until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. Verse 1 says, Then God remembered Noah. Did God forget about Noah? See, it wasn't that God forgot about Noah. He wasn't like, oh yeah, that guy I have floating in that ship that isn't able to even steer. Oh yeah, we should probably check in and see how he's doing. No, the idea that God remembered Noah was the idea that God began to act on Noah's behalf. We're told here that the the waters began to recede and decrease, but we're given uh, three ways that God did this. Look at verse two in your Bibles. Sorry, verse one, the end of verse one. The first way that God began to have the waters, right? Everyone's dead except these eight. God remembers Noah. He begins to act on his behalf. And then at the end of verse one, it says, then God made a wind to pass over the earth. So God, God makes a wind. But then secondly, look at verse two, the fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were also stopped. And so he stops the, the fountains of the deep. That's the, that's the oceans from uh, pouring forth even more water. And God closed the windows of heaven to restrain the rain. And so we're told that God remembered Noah. He was, he was faithful to that promise and began to have the waters uh, begin to recede, but it was a process. Now, if you read through chapter eight and even just what we just read, there's some dates given. We have some different numbers given. 40 days is typically the amount of time that we all think of, but Noah was on the boat for a lot more than just 40 days. So 40 days was, seems to be like the intensity, the initial kind of filling of the earth. The water continued for 150 days total. That's what we find in, in verse three there. And they began to decrease, but then it takes a while for all the water to kind of rest and get back to its place. And so if you kind of take all these numbers, take the different dates, you can add up to the fact that Noah and his family and all the animals we're on the ark for a little over a year, 370 to 371 days. That's the, 
That's like the, the window that they were on the ark. Imagine being on a cruise ship for that long. I mean, I'm sure cruises are fun. I've never been on one, but I'm sure after a week, you're like, all right, I'm ready to get off. They were on there for 370 to 371 days. And so after Noah sends some birds to check on the water levels, the, the rest of chapter eight, he'll send a, a raven out, he'll send a dove, and he kind of checks on the water levels. He opens a window. He's not yet out of the ark. He's, they're, they're ready to get out, all right? So Noah kind of does his part. But then God speaks to Noah once again and tells him, notice verse 15, he says, go out of the ark. Do you guys see that? Verse 15, he says, go, uh, sorry, 16, 15 and 16. Then God spoke to Noah saying, go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons. See, God had fulfilled that promise to Noah that he would save him and his family. I want you to notice these two commands. We already looked at the first one. The first command, he said, come to me. And of the second one, he says, go. Can anyone think of another command in scripture that tells us to go? If Jesus tells us to come, that's the first step. But then there's also a time where Jesus tells us to go. Anna? Yeah, absolutely. Anyone know the, the passage I'm referring to? You're very close. Yeah, 28. Matthew 28, right? Jesus says, go into all the world and make disciples. And the great, it's known as the Great Commission. And so, yes, we are to come to Jesus, but then he also commands us to go. And so we see a little bit more parallelism there, all right? Now, we're going to close with, with Noah, talking about Noah. We see Noah's priority. We saw God's provision we saw God's promise, but let's see what the first act, what does Noah first do when he gets off that boat? Look at verse 20, 21, and 22. It says, then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer and day and night shall not cease. So God fulfills his promise to Noah Finally, after 370 days, they get to get off that stinky ship with all those animals and they get to, get to come on to dry land. The waters have now receded. And think about what you would want to do after getting off a boat for that long. Collapse. Co collapse. Uh, all kinds of different things, but Worshiping might not be the first thing that comes to mind. Here we have the first mention of the word altar. An altar. An altar is a raised structure for the purpose of animal sacrifice. Put your hand down. Noah builds an altar to the Lord, okay? So the altar, we're told in verse 20, is for God. 
And at this point, Noah builds his altar. He takes from the clean animals, every clean animal and every bird, he offers burnt offerings on the altar. This could have been the reason. Some people think this is why God told Noah to take seven of the clean animals, that there would be three pairs, male and female, and then there would be one extra that would simply survive to be offered to the Lord. Now, this offering, it doesn't seem like it was as much for sin as it was a thanksgiving type of offering, a heart of gratitude that God had seen them through. And notice verse 21 we're told that after Noah does this, and that's a lot of animals. This is a really big barbecue, all right? We're told that after he did that, that the Lord smells a soothing aroma. This shows us that God absolutely does love barbecue, but that's a different topic. Now, while it was probably true that God smelled the aroma of meat, I don't think it was the aroma of meat that smelled so good to God as much as that heart, put your hand down, as much as that heart that desired to, uh, to receive what Noah wanted to give to him. It, it pleased God. Because think about this for a moment. There's not too many animals on the earth at this point, only what's on the ark. And so when you look at this thing from a purely practical standpoint, this would be an unwise thing to do. There are only so many animals alive and to start killing them to offer a sacrifice to God doesn't seem like the smartest thing to do. Would you agree? Yet what does Noah do? He puts worship as the first priority. I mean, they've been on this, this, this boat. He gets off and the first thing he does is to seek to worship. It was a sacrifice, but it was a worthy sacrifice. A worthy sacrifice. There's a time at the end of the book of Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 24, where David needed to buy a field and build an altar to the Lord. And we're told that a man named Aruna tried to buy it for him, but notice David's response. Okay, look, look at the screen. It says, then the king said to Aruna, no, but I will surely buy it fr uh, from you for price. Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord, my God, with that which costs me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. What's the point? Do we offer to God that which costs us nothing? Or when it may even seem impractical, do we sacrifice what we have to worship God? Whether that's comfort, whether that's convenience, whether that's what, whatever it might be. You see, the sacrificial worship system isn't something that God wants from us. He doesn't want us like, hey, I really want you to go get that sheep and sacrifice. That's not something that God desires. God desires us. How can we offer to God that which costs us something? It's to offer God our life. You see, our tendency is to want to live for ourselves. But to put worship first and to put sacrifice first is to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice that we might seek to praise 
and thank him. She just says Noah went in on that, on that ship and was saved. So you and I have gone in through that door of Jesus Christ and we have experienced his salvation. Hebrews 13, 15, and we'll close here, says, therefore by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to him, to his name. See, we're not gonna build an altar. We're not gonna, we're not gonna kill an innocent lamb. We're not gonna have a barbecue as hungry as you might be. But what we can do today is to take a note from Noah and sacrifice ourselves to the Lord. And one simple way that we can do that tonight is to offer the sacrifice of praise to God to give him thanks. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this picture in scripture. Lord, we know that this was a actual event that took place. It was historical. Lord, there's extra biblical evidence and and all that stuff. But this is what you've, you've told us has happened in the past. And quite literally, we know that in a way, history will repeat itself. That though Noah and his sons, Lord, were pure at this time, they were worshiping you, there is no one wicked acting in wickedness on the earth. Yet it would just be not too long from now that, that sin would make its mark yet again. And now you transfer thousands of years ahead. Lord, things are evil. Man's heart is evil continually before you. And that's why we need you. And we know you're coming back soon. The signs of the times are getting closer and closer. And no one knows the day or the hour, but God, would you help us to listen to you, to come into the ark and to draw close to you. God, we love you, and we thank you for your salvation in Jesus. We pray that you would receive the sacrifice of praise, the offering of our lips, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.